and welcome to the April edition of The Correspondent, the podcast edition of the magazine from the Foreign Correspondents Club of Hong Kong. My name is Taylor Rabana. I am one of the three recipients of the Claire Hollingsworth Fellowship from the FCC this year, and it is my great pleasure to bring you this first episode of our magazine podcast, recorded right here in the Hughes Room at the FCC. You can, of course, catch up with the online edition of this magazine edition at the FCC website. That's at FCCHK.org. There's a common thread that runs through the cover story of this edition of The Correspondent's magazine and the FCC president Keith Richburg's column. And that is that journalism is going through an evolutionary moment right now. Now, Claire Hollingsworth famously got the scoop of the century when she reported the start of World War II by holding up a telephone to let her editor hear the sound of German tanks rolling past on their way to Poland to prove that war was underway. What would she think about the way that today's journalists are using open source intelligence, social media, and satellite maps to cover the war in Ukraine from thousands of miles away? From ChatGPT to social media to using memes to tell the story of Hong Kong, we are a long, long way from correspondents filing reports via telephone. And in this episode, you're going to hear from two people working here in Hong Kong who are part of that evolution. So let's get started on this inaugural magazine edition of The Correspondent. After three years of work from home, leave home safe app check-ins, and mandatory mask laws, we finally find ourselves back to normal here in Hong Kong. There's a lot of things that have changed over the past three years, starting with the number of people that actually live here in Hong Kong. But something has also changed in our media landscape here. If you're not on Twitter, or you weren't working as a frontline journalist covering the daily press conferences from the Hong Kong's health and government officials, then maybe you won't recognize the Twitter handle Tripperhead. But I can tell you, journalists of most major organizations in the city relied on his daily COVID updates like nothing else. What happened to the man who has since dropped the pseudonym and revealed himself as Aaron Bush, now that the daily press conferences are over? Aaron is one of our newest members to the FCC in Hong Kong, and he appears in our latest edition of The Correspondent magazine. Aaron Bush, welcome. Thanks for having me. So as I mentioned, you're one of the newest journalist members of the FCC. But you're a different kind of journalist. So how do you define yourself? Are you a citizen journalist, social media journalist? How should we call you? That's interesting because quite regularly it gets, it's, it's hard to pigeonhole, to figure out which, which slot I fall into. Regularly I try to say social media journalist because it covers all of the social media. I just, a book that uh, I contributed to that's coming out May 1st, uh, they called me a citizen journalist. I've had other people just sort of say online journalist. So social media sort of seems to be what it is. All my stuff is online, so social media journalist. Was there a moment back in 2020 when COVID first started, when you woke up and decided, you know, this is it, I'm going to pursue this Twitter thing and become a social media journalist full time? Nope. No, it's just evolved into it? It is completely involved, like evolved into it. Uh, when I started doing it, it was personally just for my stuff. I started doing the numbers in my spreadsheet back in January 2020. I'm like, I'm going to count. I'm a bit of a numbers nerd. So I started a spreadsheet and I started tracking the China numbers and then Hong Kong started getting their first cases from January 23, 2020. So I sort of pivoted to the Hong Kong numbers. And then about March, I was watching all the press conferences for my own personal benefit. I didn't know what was going on. I'm a stay-at-home dad. I've got two children. I have a wife that's working. So I wanted to figure out what is going to happen as we go forward. 
So I started to track it. And then I started to go, well, if I'm watching every single press conference and I'm tracking all the numbers, I should put it somewhere. Sort of maybe even subconsciously I went, maybe it needs to be preserved for, for the future when it's all over. So and I didn't, nobody obviously assumed in March 2020 we were going to go on for another two and a half years. But I put it up there on Twitter and then like I had 300 followers on Twitter. And I, no, no lie, 90% of them were bots, the old Twitter bots. So there was a few family and friends from Australia, maybe one or two people in Hong Kong. I didn't have any friends back then. Uh, I was spending all my time doing the children's stuff, so I wasn't going out and socialising. So there was nobody following me. Then I started putting the numbers up and maybe one or two people, it popped up in what is now for you. Maybe that's how it got. Then people started to like follow me, like it and ask questions, oh, can you find out about this or can you find out about that? And so it just continued to snowball and got to the end of December 2020. I think I had a 1,000 followers and I thought, oh, well, that's it. That's as many followers as I can get in Hong Kong. That's all the, all the expats and the English-speaking people in Hong Kong covered. But it continued to uh, grow. And how many followers do you have now? I think I'm nearing on 45,000 on the Trip Ahead account. There's another account. Oh my that, God, 45,000? Yeah. There's that many people left in Hong Kong? Well, there's not. I, I had a check, actually, speaking of being the number nerd. I had a look yesterday at the split, and I think it's about 47% uh, Hong Kong, mm -hmm. but the rest is spread around the world. So people around the world, and of course, there's Hong Kong um, People that have moved away, a lot of people moved away during the pandemic but still want to keep up with the Hong Kong news, so they're following me. And there's other people that uh, follow coronavirus news, so they started following me. So it's, it's spread across. About 50%, I reckon, is uh, based in Hong Kong. Right. And now that COVID is kind of over, you've made a pivot to something a little bit more broad and just covering Hong Kong in general. What would you say is your focus now? I tend to just look what news affects the people that were following me anyway. Okay, there's lots of news in Hong Kong and there's lots of news outlets. But most of the news outlets are covering everything. So like just a huge sphere, they have to, like the SCMP, Bloomberg it focused on finance and CNN international news, stuff that the little stuff in Hong Kong may not make the news too. So that's the sort of stuff we're following and, and people that are interested in what's happening day by day. That's that's the plan and that's currently it's still a work in progress. Obviously um, three months ago, we were still under COVID restrictions, so most people were wanting me to put out COVID restriction news. So the pivot's on. And how much interaction do you have with your audience? Because I think that's the one big difference that social media has really created for journalists, is that for the first time, you get to interact with your readers and your viewers in a way that we never could before. And obviously, it seems like you've kind of built your brand off of that. Exactly. So I made a, a personal rule when I first started doing it, that I would answer every single question that anybody asks me. Every single DM, I try to reply to every single tweet if I know the answer. I mean, if it's a generic sort of just somebody's opinion, I'm not gonna reply to that. But if somebody asks me a question, whether it's privately or on Twitter or even via the Substack or via email, people know my email, it's not that hard to figure out. So people contact me, WhatsApp, Signal, I get messages all the time and a lot of the time during 2022, most of my time was taken up, even though it looked like I was working 14 hours a day online, a lot of the work is also at the same time I was doing these replies. So I was replying to people who didn't want to be online, but they were following me anyway so they could get the information they were looking for. So that was my 
I've always done. It's like, and I'm still doing it today. I wake up, oh, there's a DM, I'll answer that. Oh, there's somebody asking a question about consumption vouchers. Okay, so that's a sort of a topic this week. This Sunday, the consumption vouchers come out. Good to know. Exactly. But there's a lot of people that have just moved to Hong Kong. How do I get my consumption voucher? How is this registration? What do I need to do? I'm turning into a PR before this happened. Last year, I wasn't PR. So I try to help them through the system and privately DM a lot of those and also uh, online on Twitter. Do you have any red lines, any stories that you won't cover or won't get into? I won't cover court cases. And my rule is on that is that I'm not in the court. So I cannot be there. And so I have to take everybody's secondhand opinion. If there's something big happening in the court, I might retweet somebody else. But it's not something that I go searching the news for. And so the courts sort of tend to be my red line. Mm. I, 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 it's just one of those things. If you're not in the court, you don't know what's going on. I don't know what the judge says. I don't know what the the person being charged looked like when they some, somebody might write a, a flowery piece where like, there was tears in the eyes, there was people in the in the gallery screaming out. But I wasn't there, so I don't know if that was fact. So that's the, the, the courts are, tend to be my red line, and it's also the courts aren't really what a lot of my followers are looking for. I mean, there is a lot of really good journalists covering the courts. So you've got the AFP going down there and covering it every day, and if needs be, I'll retweet AFP or um, FT and the Times. They're always going down there in the big cases. That's what their job is. So that's fine, and I'll leave that to them, and I'll carry on with the, the stuff that people are interested in that follow me. Can you tell us a little bit more about your evolution to Substack and putting out a daily newsletter? What is Substack in the first place? That's a good question. <laughs> um, how to describe Substack? It, it's a, it, it, good, a little uh, bit of trivia to start with. The, one of the co-founders used to live in Hong Kong, Hamish McKenzie. Uh, he was a writer and he moved to the US and co-founded Substack. And when I was starting the newsletter, I, start, I just found it. I, last year I wanted to put up guides, guides to arriving in Hong Kong, guides to departing, uh, what you needed to do, and I just didn't, like if you put it in Twitter, it'll disappear. So I wanted something that was a newslettery type uh, uh, thing online where everybody could find out that information and I could just tweet it out anyway. So I started on Substack. I didn't know that Hamish had created it. I, I talked to him later on because I had to fix some problems. So I write a newsletter and I write that every night and it's just basically... The idea with the newsletter that's nightly is to give that day's information in a package. So people are working, people are busy, people are no longer desperate for the COVID news as quick as possible, but they still want the Hong Kong news. So I package it up in a Substack newsletter and I send that out and off it goes. Currently, Substack and Twitter are having a feud, which is causing me no end of grief because I used to embed my tweets into the newsletter and send that out. Now, I can't embed the tweets, but now Substack have launched Notes, which is basically their version of Twitter. So that feud goes on, and, and between Twitter and Substack, because of all those newsletters and those uh, guides that I put out, um, there's like roughly a 1,000 followers on Substack. I mean, a lot of them are crossover from Twitter. Some are new that are discovering Substack as well. But... So I put that out every night and I literally just changed the model of my Substack last night because I am worried where Twitter is going with Elon. So I want to build the Substack 
as a base, not just as a backup anymore, but as a place where people can go and get the news as well. So I send out the nightly newsletter to my paid subscribers. They're not very many, but they're very generous, and I thank all of them that do it. And most of them aren't even subscribing because they, they want that newsletter. They're subscribing because they feel like they want to give me something from all the work that I've done. So that's fine. I'm happy to send that out. But now I've sort of changed it to those paid subscribers get the newsletter at 9 p.m. each night, and then all the other free subscribers, which is 90% more of them, will get that same news the next morning at 9 a.m. So everybody gets it. More people come and join the Substack. Everybody gets the Hong Kong news, and we continue to grow. So that actually brings me to something that I also wanted to ask you about, the general state of affairs with Twitter. How has the politics of Elon Musk kind of affected you as a social media journalist in general? It's annoying. Look, it's every day you wake up and it's like dealing with a petulant child. I mean, stay-at-home dad, I've had two of them. I know what toddlers are like, but at times Elon is like a toddler. You look at the New York Times losing their blue tick because Elon just decided one of his sycophants, he lives in a bubble, right? Social media, and a lot of people get sucked into this. They have this bubble where everybody tells them they're wonderful and they don't hear anything outside of that bubble. And so one of his followers decided to pick on the New York Times and then Elon just goes and tells somebody to take the blue tick off them. And now he's having a petty fight with NPR and PBS. And it's like you don't know what he's going to do next. And it's annoying because it was a great platform. All through the pandemic, it was a great platform, right? We all used it. We all followed everybody. We got the information we wanted fast now. Sometimes I, I wake up this morning and found out that people couldn't reply to other people's tweets. It's not working how it should be. And I did say on my other account last night, perhaps, on the night before, the way it's going, if the major news outlets start pulling out and they don't have any real need to be there, it's going to end up like Truth Social 2.0. It's going to be a right-wing bubble where there's going to be certain governments that are always going to be there tweeting out what they like to tweet out and everybody else that has a different opinion leaves. And that all of a sudden means other people are going to leave. And that's where Substack may end up being that one social media outlet that rises. You know, like everyone goes, oh, well, Twitter's not going anywhere, Facebook's not going anywhere. I'm so old, I remember MySpace. So there's plenty of times where you can go back and go, oh, Navigator was the best ever browser and you could find all these places. And then Google comes along. And all of a sudden, these things don't exist. MySpace, going well. Tom sells it. They don't know what to do with it. Facebook arrives. There's always going to be something new. And if you mess with the product too much, that's when your competitors are going to overtake. So at the moment, it's a juggling act between staying on Twitter because that's where I've got 45,000 followers or just focusing on the 1,000 followers that I have on Substack who I know want to listen to exactly what I want anyway. We'll see. Is Tripperhead going to pay for the blue tick? Tripperhead currently can't pay for the blue tick. Uh, I don't know why. Back, back during the pandemic, when we were bored and it was a bit of a slow news day, we used to talk about Aaron getting a blue tick. And it was always a running joke that Aaron couldn't get a blue tick because Aaron doesn't work for a news organisation and you couldn't be a journalist on Twitter to get a blue tick. And I think I applied so many times I broke the system. So now when I go to try to sign up on the web, which is cheap because it doesn't have to pay the Google Apple tax, it just goes around in a circle and says cannot. Computer says cannot. So I've got the choice of paying that extra 50% instead of 660 a year, I can pay 990 
which I'm not going to do, just out of principle, why would I pay an extra $330 or can't? So I've just, no. So, I mean, that gives me a good excuse to say no anyway when I probably wouldn't. At the moment, non-blue tick is sort of prestigious. It's a little bit cool. Yeah. It's a bit of an underdog thing. Waiting I've, for mine to go. I've now, I've now actually, there's a really good uh, Chrome extension which you can install and it, when you pull up Twitter, it'll tell you who's a verified and who's a paid. Because if you know, if you look on your mobile or the like, it'll just have a blue tick and you do not know who you're replying to. You could be replying to the CEO of a company with 300,000 followers or some bloke who joined two days ago and uh, likes crypto. So that's a good little extension. I can't remember what it's called. You can Google it that probably. That sounds pretty handy, yeah. It is very handy. And it's just amusing as well to see who's actually paid. So what is your actual forecast for Twitter? It doesn't sound like you think it's going to stick around for much longer, but is there a real solid replacement? I, I just don't think I've seen anything that is as comfortable and convenient and feels as much of a community the way that Twitter did for a very long time. Substack notes looks and feels like it, but we've also said that about Mastodon um, and the other offshoots, Post. Yeah. Um, like post, I don't, that, I, is that dead yet? I'm not sure. I get an, an, an email. And my tweets are still cross-posting to Mastodon as far as I'm mm. aware, but I keep forgetting I even have a Mastodon account until we literally mention it. Until there's a, a replacement with big, big numbers, yeah, it's going to be Twitter until either Twitter falls apart. Like if Twitter brings in the rule that if you don't have a blue tick, you're going to be um, ghosted on the For You page or... Like, I even I noticed if I tweet the word Substack out, it will not appear in my tweet deck. I can't see my tweet if it says the word Substack or a Substack link. We'll get over this petty fight. Elon always moves on. I half expect him to eventually sell it for a loss. Uh, I don't think he'll shut it down, but he could if he just wants to take the tax write-off. But at the moment, um, we'll just play it by ear and keep going. This... I'm not going to move to Facebook, put it that way. And as a citizen journalist, do you feel like Twitter also created a kind of journalistic community for you that you got to be a part of? I think, you know, as a personally, I started out as a freelancer, so that's the way it felt. That was my first real, like, entry into the world of journalism and other journalists in Hong Kong. So, you know, when you're not a member at the FCC, I feel like Twitter and social media spaces can do that for you. You know when you have kids, well, not that you have kids, but when you're a kid and you see a sports star and you just idolise them and you'll follow them. Like when I was a kid, it was Michael Jordan. For me, it's always been journalists. I love journalists and I always think of them as like tier level. Like I, 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 somebody, if a journalist would DM me when it first started getting into that circles, I'd have a panic attack. It was just like, oh my, oh my God, that such and such from this outlet or such and such from this outlet is messaging me. And over time, I ended up, you know, realising that we're all the same, we're all human, we end up being friends and whatever, and become a bigger and bigger community. But that's always been my thing. Everybody that's a journalist and working as a journalist has been my idol. So this has just been brilliant. I, I mentioned it on Twitter as well the other night about the fact that the pandemic and what I did has afforded me so much that I can never dream of. So much has happened in the last three years personally to me um, a friend is downstairs in the bar here at FCC and he said, you remember three years ago where you refused to go outside and you would not meet anybody and you were antisocial and you didn't like having anybody around? I went, yeah, I can't remember that now. Yeah, so that's this is how it's progressed and personally it's a great personal development for me, meeting people, meeting you, 
like the, the Claire Hollingsworth people. Like we were at the, that um, drinks the other night. You guys are like, you're the future. You guys are the heroes. It's so good to meet you. I'm making, I'm making Teller embarrassed. I'm sorry. Aaron Bush, thank you for everything that you've done over the past three years and everything that you're doing now. Great to have you here and welcome to the FCC. Thanks for having me. So moving on from the pandemic to something a little bit more fun. Um, The way Generation Z consumes news is quite different from the way that previous generations do it. We can get all our updates, understand what's going on in the world without ever opening CNN, SCMP, let alone an actual physical newspaper. Um, We get it all from social media is the point here. And a lot of it comes in the form of memes. So we would like to welcome our next guest, Nancy Lim, who represents a very different media paradigm from what the old timers at the FCC might be used to. She's the founder of Hong Kong Meme, one of the most popular meme websites and sources of information in the city. Welcome, Nancy. Hi. Hello. (laughs) Can you tell us, first of all, how did you get into memes in the first place? So uh, it's not a glamorous story at all. I got into it because... uh, in my final year of university, I ran out of things to procrastinate with. So um, I've done Facebook, I've done YouTube, I've done, you know, scrolling Instagram for hours and hours, and I got really bored of them. So I wanted to try something new. So um, in 2000, when was it, 17 was when the memes was really booming. And I've noticed that there were niche meme pages for America, for Australia, England, for all those English-speaking pages, but there wasn't much in Hong Kong. I think back in the days there was the Hong Kong meme Facebook page, but that was dormant for a few years already. So it's not that I found a business opportunity there. It just kind of became a lucky accident where I started making memes just for my friends, but then it started spreading words like wildfire, and then it became something, yeah. Can you remember what was the very first meme that you made? Ah, I, I cannot. It was six years ago. I can't <laughs> even remember what I had for last night. So I'm so sorry. I should have done my homework. <laughs> yeah. When did you feel it really taking off? You said that it's become a whole new thing that you didn't really see it becoming into. But when could you feel the momentum really building? I think it started building, I think, four or five months in. Um, I think just within one year, I reached... 10k and maybe that's much easier now with TikTok and you know how everybody's so socially engaged but back then that was a big deal for me but when I felt that I really made it was when I uh, when all these publishers well not some of the publishers started wanting to interview me and wanted to hear my thoughts on certain topics so that's when I thought that oh wow I that's the that's my moment. Taking a step back for a second what do you think about Hong Kong's social media environment in the first place? I think in the past few week or so, we've seen a lot of stories, as you know, Hong Kong is a city that never had TikTok or hasn't had TikTok in years and mm-hmm. how it's it's kind of different from the way that social media is used in a lot of other places. So what do you think about, you know, what it's like to be a social media famous person in the city in the first place? Um, first of all, I think the social media space in Hong Kong, to, to your first question, I think is still um, slow compared to the rest of the world. Um, as a social media influencer, of course, I got... Uh, I got to enjoy many benefits, but I don't think I was able to experience as many benefits as other KOLs, the traditional ones, like the ones involved in food, beauty, etc. Because if you're talking about big corporates, they still don't believe in a comedic creator like me. So they don't get, uh, they don't really trust in our brand as much as the 
other English-speaking countries do. For example, um, McDonald's is a huge fan of supporting meme pages, uh, big, big meme creators. So they spend millions of dollars um, investing uh, in these creators to uh, promote their brand. But I think, it's just my personal opinion, I think it will still take a few years for Hong Kong to get to that stage. They I think to this day, they are not, they, they're not really understanding um, humor can turn into uh, a great element for their brand promotion and awareness, but they don't realize that until now, yeah. When was the first time that memes became a business opportunity for you? Who were the first brands that reached out? I think the first one that reached out to me that was really big was um, Warner Music. So that was a brand that I was able to tell my friend about and they were like, oh yeah, I know that. <laughs> I know that company, you know. Um, they wanted me to promote, I think, um, Cardi B and Lizzo's song. I think that was one of the first um, collaboration opportunities we did. Um, but in terms of all the collaboration opportunities I had, Nutrition Kitchen was my biggest hit because that's when the Will Smith hit Chris Rock and I actually turned that into a meme and a lot of people reposted that and um, Nutrition Kitchen people really liked it. What <laughs> was that meme? So, you know, back <laughs> just a few <laughs> years ago, there was like abundance of Nutrition Kitchen ad happening on YouTube and Instagram. They were flooding, flooding, pretty much spamming us. So I turned that into a meme where I am the Chris Rock, and then Will Smith is the Nutrition Kitchen ad. So he's like slapping my face every single day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry to make you explain a meme out loud. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah, it's really <laughs> unfunny when you do that. Just, just go to my page. <laughs> yeah. How much editorial freedom do you get when you're working with um, companies or partners like that? Uh, I actually don't get a lot. Um, a lot of times if I'm working with big corporates, they don't tend to want to make fun of their, themselves even though that's the whole point of memes. Um, I was, I've was i been very grateful to work with smaller companies where they actually understand my brand and they give me as much freedom as possible. But for the big corporate ones, I have to actually go through quite a lot of revisions to get to uh, the point where we're both happy. So what makes a good meme? You said making fun of yourself is the essence? I think what makes a good meme, in my opinion, is what the memes that make my friends laugh because it's been six years and they've seen pretty much every Hong Kong theme memes on earth right now. You know, there's a lot of uh, pages as well. But once um, for the ones that, you know, they make an effort to message me, I know those are the ones that are good memes. Yeah. I think what's really made Hong Kong memes kick off, especially like through the pandemic and in the past couple of years, is that they kind of feel like inside jokes. Yeah, they're very niche jokes. My mom's, mom doesn't understand. My family doesn't understand. None of my friends from overseas understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like I think the whole rivalry between like Hong Kong and Singapore, for example, is yeah. like a big thing that yeah. everybody can kind of resonate with here. Mm. Yeah, so I, I'm, as much as I'm happy to be the creator of insider jokes because, you know, they're really one of the best jokes out there, but that actually puts a limit to how much my page can grow compared to other meme pages that are making fun of anything and everything or TikTok pages. So that's my reality at the moment, yeah. How much bigger do you think your audience can, can still grow in Hong Kong? Considering that a lot of expats left, <laughs> I'm not too sure. I'm hoping more people will come in. But also I realize there's a huge um, missing market for local audience. And I'm an expat myself, so there's still a lot of untapped uh, topic 
that uh, I'm unaware of. So I constantly make an effort to ask my local friends, my colleagues, or anyone I meet uh, about their culture, their understanding, their current daily struggles, and etc., so that I will have something to translate into memes. Sounds like anthropology. Anthropology, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, you, yeah, I guess you can say that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's good. We can start making fun of all the new expats that are coming into the city. Yeah, but you know, there's not a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. Not for now. Yeah, for now. So the FCC recently did an exhibition putting a bunch of the different Hong Kong meme websites, printing them out and putting them on the wall downstairs here at the bar. And Hong Kong Meme was obviously one of them. Is that the first time you've seen your work exhibited like that? And, and how did it feel? Yeah, it was definitely my first time. I think it was one of my proudest achievements. You know, I've had many milestones uh, on my Instagram page, but it was actually the first time I see things materialize in an offline world. So that was, that was really something for me. So I'm really grateful for the opportunity. Yeah. Do you feel like the, the jokes work the same way when they're not on a little screen and they're printed out on, on a wall, kind of as a, in like in a museum? Yeah, because I think memes are, okay, I guess what makes uh, memes good memes are they have to be topical. You know, you, you cannot talk about certain topics or news uh, two weeks later. You have to be in the moment. So a lot of memes that I guess uh, have been shared in FCC, that was during the pandemic times. And obviously we have moved past that. So I don't think people would have found it funny as much as when people saw my meme for the first time during the pandemic. Yeah. So you're actually tapping into something that I really wanted to ask you about here. You're not specifically a journalist, but there is something that you do that is almost parallel to what journalists do, which is kind of, you're reflecting on something that's topical, you're tapping into the mood of the people in the city and the way that they feel and the way that they want to express themselves. How do you do that? How do you kind of tap into the feeling of the city and what people are looking for? I mean, first of all, thank you for... <laughs> making me feel like a journalist. I've never <laughs> felt that way until FCC brought it to my attention. Um, when people ask me similar questions like you're, you did, I have never realized I'm tapping into the mood of the people. It's The meme ha has been always about me, how I feel in, in that current moment. And... You know, I don't think my opinions are unique. It's actually very simple, right? If it's, it's actually really simple. If you think about it, if the weather is really bad outside, you feel shitty. Like you don't want to work. You don't want to do a lot of stuff. You want to nap inside. It's the same thing. So when there's a news or there's events happening, as long as you have a sensible mind, I'm sure a lot of people will see eye to eye on how I'm feeling. So that's that's how I've been creating memes. I don't think there was any special approach on me surveying people or anything like that. Yeah. So we're all a lot more alike than we sometimes think. Yeah. So it's just, it's actually, it's like my personal diary. You can really read my thoughts and my feeling for that time through my memes. It's, it's actually been very, very personal to me. Yeah. It's interesting. Are there any topics that you don't get to or that you try and stay away from that are maybe too personal? Yes, a hundred percent. I mean, ever since the introduction of the laws, sedition law, there's a lot of of topics that I cannot uh, talk about and I still don't for an obvious reason. Yeah. Have you ever thought about taking your work offline and doing stand-up or anything else in the entertainment comedy sphere? I've always wanted to, but I don't think I have the guts yet. But also I have, I, I just feel extremely insecure to be outside, and, you know, to do stand-up in front of the audience because a lot of time people expect me to be funny 
all the time, but that's not actually me. <laughs> so I have this fear of not being able to make people laugh once I get on the stage. So I'm just holding myself back, but I really want to try sometimes. Yeah. Maybe we should get all the Hong Kong online meme people together and host a stand-up show at the FCC. <laughs> but I feel like they're just going to roast me hard. So I'm not gonna <laughs> we'll see. I, I need a lot of alcohol to do that, to have the courage. So yeah. That's why we have the extra large members glasses. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Something else that I wanted to get into is, like I mentioned in the beginning, the way that our generation consumes media is really different from the way that it was consumed previously. Mm -hmm. So where do you get your news from? Is it all social media? Is it... Uh, I think social media, yes. I like to look at the snippet of what the media, uh, sorry, the traditional media publishers put out for, you know, HKFP, SEMP, you know, a lot of other stuff. I also look at Reddit often. But I think that's actually the main source of news that I get at the moment. I'm a big fan of Reddit as well. Yes. I feel like it's just like you get such a great insight into yeah. the psyche of the world and yeah. what people are thinking and what they're worried about yeah, and a, what they're interested in. I'm a huge fan of uh, Reddit as well. Yeah. Biggest time waster too. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It make you feel like you're a smarter person than when you're scrolling Instagram. That's how I feel about myself. So yeah, because you're reading. You're not looking at pictures. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. a picture Ooh, reading book text. Text. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what do you think about the fact that a lot of times people will use your memes as an information source and they won't go anywhere else for it, but they will look at memes? Does it feel like an added responsibility or do you consider that at all? Yeah, I have a, I feel like I definitely have a more responsibility than I ever did before. Uh, especially during the protest, there was a lot of fake news and information going around and everything was chaotic. So I try to be as informative as possible, but also I held back from a lot of reporting done by my followers because I wasn't able to prove it. So I only reposted stuff that was posted by someone that I think that are legit. Yeah, I'm very, very hyper aware of it at the moment because I know that my audience is very young. They start from 15, actually it goes up all the way to 30, but I know a lot of teens are looking at my profile at the moment. So what I post, I have to be really careful about it. Yeah. Has any of your memes ever been completely just misconstrued and misinterpreted? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, there was the whole cases about Ursus outbreak. So I try actually, it's actually my own fault. I, so I try to make fun of it without actually understanding the full context. And a lot of people uh, who is, uh, I guess, from the community of Ursus Fitness has reached out to me, uh, I guess, trying to get the story right. And I actually made a public apology on it and that I got something wrong. And since then, I try my best not to witch hunt someone or some company because I know a lot of people's livelihood is dependent on that. But it actually also makes uh, my content a lot more limited because I cannot make fun of things and people as much as I used to before. And is it just a one, one woman show? It's just you and your team? Or do you have anybody kind of looking over your stuff or editing in any way? No, it's, it's just me. And it's terrible. I realized <laughs> I had no idea Chaotic Hong Kong has like a huge team of 20 people. And then they all contribute ideas and they bounce back, you know, different meme content. But I don't have that. And I feel like I should build one. But also, I don't know, I'm just too lazy to do, <laughs> to make, make a community. You yeah. heard it here first. Okay. Hong Kong Mema is looking for interns. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, you know, one of the questions that I think was addressed was, you know, how is it different now from my page compared to back in the days? Now, since it's, it's, it's a one-man business, I, uh, I've been actually having lots of, I guess, 
creators, artist block, is that what it's called, um, to come up with content. So the frequency has been a lot more lower than it ever did before. Yeah. Where do you get inspiration from mostly? I get it just from my daily life. I have no fancy way of answering that. I just walk outside, see a particular event, and I'll turn that into a meme. And what do you think about the future of media? Do you think uh, you know memes and social media kind of information, flows of information are going to continue to grow, or where do you think we're headed? I can't speak for the overall general trend, but I think definitely where we are heading with the information sharing, it, it has to be it's going to be shorter and shorter. Especially myself, my attention span is getting shorter and shorter. So maybe social media will be a great tool for it. But, you know, there's a lot of uh, restriction. And then, you know, TikTok might go down in in U.S. So I can't speak for anyone or an, anything that said this will happen. But I know that people are just going to get uh, have a less and less patience towards uh, reading information online. And looking for more entertainment as well, it seems like. Yes, yes. Everything has to be funny now. (laughs) Funny works. (laughs) Nancy Lim, thank you so much. Thanks for making us laugh and for being on our very first episode. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our first edition of The Correspondent. Don't forget, you can find us on Twitter at FCCHK. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. We've also got our YouTube channel, just search for FCCHK, and you can find all of our lunchtime talks, Q&A sessions, and interviews there in full. My name is Tel Verbane. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you for listening, and see you at the bar.